As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. For what it's worth, yeah, that's the bottom line. It's an alignment of interest. It's something I look for. It's something that everyone listening should put in their criteria either way. Before we get into it, I want to introduce you to Groundbreaker, today's sponsor and partner. They are an all-in-one suite of tools for small to medium-sized real estate syndicators. They've got a special focus on real estate syndicators with $1 million to $100 million assets under management. They help you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Groundbreaker will help you scale your business without the need to scale your overhead. So they're going to help reduce your costs because of the admin team that won't need to be as large. And they're going to help you reduce your risk of data breach because of the security systems that they have in place. They'll help you increase your revenue by growing your assets under management because you're going to be allowed to focus on the things that are most important, like business growth and operations not those administrative logistics. And ultimately, they're going to help you elevate your company's brand and professionalism and investor experience because your investors are going to enjoy having this platform with all their information versus however you're currently doing it. Three things specifically about Groundbreaker I personally like. One, super easy to use from an investor standpoint and from a general partner standpoint. Two, it allows investors and general partners to fund electronically, meaning that a limited partner can complete their entire subscription and funding cycle without leaving the platform. And on the general partnership side, for distributions, you can set it up so that you can trigger bulk ACH payments within the platform. And then the last thing I really like about Groundbreaker is it's, well, it's cost effective. It's healthy to the bottom line. Their basic plan allows sponsors to sign up for as little as $100 per month with no limits on deals or investors. And you can read all about the pricing on their website. Speaking of their website, it is groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe, J-O-E. And when you go there, groundbreaker.co forward slash J-O-E, you're going to get access to a pitch deck that the Groundbreaker team created so that you have a template should you want to use that and customize it for your own deal. So go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. 
For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, today's guest is being interviewed by Theo Hicks. You know, Theo, he's with us every Friday on Follow Along Friday. You're going to get a lot of value from this conversation. So with that being said, let's get going. Hello, best ever listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Actively Passive Investing Show. As always, I'm here with Travis Watts. Travis, how are you doing today? Hey, Theo, I'm doing great. Thanks. Yep. Well, thanks for being here. And today we are going to answer your questions. That's right. We are now accepting questions from the best ever listeners. And we received a few questions and we're going to answer questions that were submitted by John this week. So John, thank you for submitting those. And as you can tell by the title of this episode, we're going to be talking about cap rates, waterfalls, and preferred returns. So before we answer those questions, Travis, do you want to talk about why we're talking about these specific topics? Yeah, I think you did a good job covering it. I think the bottom line is in the last three, four episodes or so, we've been opening up the ability to pre-submit your questions to us. And we've been doing our best to keep up and try to do those either on a 60 second clip or on our episode. And I thought, you know, why don't we just make a full episode of just questions that have come in over the last week. We won't be able to get to them all. This is only a couple, but I wanted to dive in because I thought these were really great questions. So that's kind of the backstory. Anyone who wants to submit a question, as always, Theo at JoeFairless.com. Submit any questions you have and we'll do our best to address them or at least to email reply if we can't do that. So (laughs) happy to do that. So I'll just dive into question number one. I thought this was good, and I want to paint this picture a little differently than anything I've ever heard myself on how this is explained. So the question is, how important are entry cap rates versus exit cap rates in underwriting? And that's a pretty big question. (laughs) And so I want to tackle that. I guess let's first start with anyone that may not be familiar. What is a cap rate? I'll give my quick and dirty explanation of it. If you paid all cash for a property... You had no debt, no leverage, no mortgage. That's your approximate yield or cash flow on the property. So if you're buying something at a five cap, million dollar property, you pay a million dollars cash. After you pay your operating expenses, you might expect somewhere in the ballpark of $50,000 per year in cash flow. That's a five cap. So I did want to bring up a visual for anyone who's tuning in on YouTube Actually, I'll get to that in just a second. Let's take a couple different parallels. I like to sometimes use stocks as an alternative example, or maybe bonds even. We'll start with bonds. So if I buy a bond and I forget what the par values are, if they're $100 or 1000 it's been a long time since stocks, bonds, and mutual funds for me. But let's say it's $1,000. I buy this bond and let's say for example purposes, interest rates are at 5% today. I wish they were, they're not, but if they were. (laughs) So if the treasury is at 5%, I'm buying a bond at 5% and then interest rates drop to 4%, for example, the price of my bond is going to go up. Okay. So I'll use my arm as that example. So bond prices go up. That means interest rates came down, interest rates go up. That means bond prices went down. So why is that? Well, because I own a bond that has a 5% coupon attached to it or a yield. Well, in today's environment, if you go shopping for bonds, you're only going to find 4%, for example. So someone is willing to pay more for my bond because it has a higher yield. But ultimately what's happening is that's going to shift it down to the current yield. So if my bond goes to $1,200, for example, 
someone pays that, they're ultimately going to have a 4% yield because that's how those numbers work. Now, let's use a stock if that was a little bit confusing. So I like to think of dividend paying stocks in parallel for this example. So you have a dividend payer stock, $10 per share. The annual dividend is 60 cents. Well, that equates to a 6% annualized yield on the stock. So let's say the market rises and we have a really big bull run. And now that stock that was $10 a share is trading at $12 per share. But if this happened in a short time frame, they may still be paying a 60 cent dividend annually. And if that's the case, then your yield just dropped from 6% down to 5%. Because if you run the numbers, 60 cents divided by 12, you get a 5% yield. So same type of inverse relationship is all I'm trying to point out. And then to that point, if you're joining us on YouTube, this is from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis and CoStar data. Sorry, I'll get out of the way. So this is U.S. multifamily cap rates and the spread between treasury yield, which is basically interest rates, and then the cap rates on multifamily. So you can see from 1981, which is where this chart starts, all the way up till about 2001, 2002, we hovered around an 8% cap rate on multifamily nationwide as an average. Since 2002, it's just gone down, 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 and down as interest rates have as well. So they are correlated. That's the point I'm trying to make. So we've basically halved the cap rates over time over the last 20 years or so. So what point am I making with that? So at the end of the day, back to the question, how important are entry cap rates versus exit cap rates in underwriting? The way I see it as a limited partner, as an investor, or as an active real estate guy, all I'm trying to do is somewhat be conservative and predict the future. And as we all know, things have cycles. Stock market has cycles, the bond market, the debt markets. Listen to Ray Dalio speak to this. He's an incredible source of knowledge on cycles in general. But the fact is we've been in a downward cycle for a long time. So what is the probability or likelihood, this is what you have to ask yourself, that maybe interest rates start to reverse and come back up? And when is that going to be? And if that happens, you can clearly see that cap rates are going to be associated with that. So we may go to an environment where today multifamilies at four or 5% cap rates, where now we start upticking again, slowly, probably, hopefully, (laughs) but to five, then six, then seven, et cetera, to kind of normalize. This could take decades, just to be clear. However, when you're underwriting a deal in multifamily, you're probably going to be in this deal for many years. So to me, it's important to think ahead. Nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody can predict the future. But what you can do is be conservative and say, yeah, I see this downward trend here and cap rates are at four and a half, five percent today. So I'm just going to go along with that and say there'll be three percent when I sell. But that's being awfully aggressive. And Theo and I talked about a story on the last episode of a syndicate group I was watching. I was vetting their deal. And that's exactly what they were doing. They're saying we're buying at a five cap. Hopefully we're going to sell this thing in a four cap. And these are our numbers and the numbers look incredible. And hopefully they can pull that off. But what happens if it goes the other direction on them? Those returns are going to get halved. It's going to look very ugly and they're not going to hit their projections by any means. So when you're underwriting, we've talked about this a lot, but if you're buying some at a five cap, holding it five years, do a five and a half cap, maybe a six cap upon exit in your underwriting just to be conservative. And that's the only point. 
I was making with the chart here. So to that point, yes, they're very important, but it's a lot to do with being conservative and it's a lot to do with your assumptions and just trying to predict the future as best we can <laughs> as real estate professionals. So with that, I know it's a long-winded question number one. Theo, do you have any thoughts on that question? Yeah, super fascinating. Thanks for sharing all that. Obviously, I agree with, because we talked about this multiple times, making sure that the exit cap rate assumption is higher than the entry. Another way to look at it as well, at least on the front end, is that when you're buying a deal, it's obviously better to buy it at a higher cap rate than the market is. Because if I buy it based off of the current net operating income and the purchase price at, say, a 6% cap rate, but similar properties in the market are trading at a 5% cap rate, then that 1% is basically just free equity I've created at purchase. So it's good to know also what the entry cap rate is based off of the purchase price and the NOI versus the market cap rate. Obviously the opposite would be a problem, right? If the market is at a five and they're buying it at a four, that would be an issue. But I wish I had a calculation, but if you just take a $500,000 NOI and you just change the cap rate by like 0.1%, the value of the property changes so much. So if you do that calculation, it'll show you why these are so important, especially the exit cap rate. Because changing the exit cap rate by a couple of decimal points might make a deal look really, really good as opposed to just being an okay deal. So as a passive investor, you don't need to know every single aspect of their underwriting, but these cap rates, since they have such a dramatic impact on the value of the property, you want to understand how they're coming up with these numbers. And that's back to that story, that syndicate group, you know, buying at a five, projecting a four. That's just the simple way as an LP, as a passive investor, something to look for. We talk about red flags. We talk about due diligence and underwriting and whatnot. Just keep an eye out for that. Always ask. In that instance, I shared on the last episode, they didn't announce that in their webinar at all. They completely brushed over the entry and exit cap rates completely and just showing folks, oh, we're going to get this 20% return or whatever it was. And it sounded great until I asked the question and realized what happened. So red flag, something to be aware of. Exactly. So that was question number one. Question number two is how important are preferred returns versus having a straight waterfall split of 70-30? So we'll define these terms really quickly. So a preferred return is basically a threshold return that the GPs offer to the past investors. So if they're offered an 8% preferred return, then they get the first 8% of the ongoing cash flow. And then once the preferred return threshold is achieved, then the remaining money is split based off of the next step in the waterfall. Whereas The other option was just a straight 70-30 split. There is no threshold return for passive investors. It's just every dollar that is output as profit is split, in this case, 70-30 or 50-50. And another term he threw in there was waterfall. Really, waterfall is just like a written explanation of how the profits are distributed. So the first part of the profits go to the debt, and the next part of the profits go to the preferred return, the next part might be unpaid preferred return, and then it might be the split. And then once it gets to a certain IRR, the split might change to something else. And so these waterfalls can be pretty complicated, or they can be as simple as just pay the debt and then 70-30.
So why is it important to have a preferred return? Well, it's kind of like a protection for the passive investors and it promotes alignment of interest between the GPs and the LP. If I'm investing in a deal and I know that I get the first 8% of the profits before the GPs get paid, then they're probably going to make sure that that deal cash flows 8% so they make their money, right? As opposed to if they just get paid regardless, if it's 1%, 2%, 3%, 4%, up to 8%, then the alignment of interest is a little bit different and I'm less protected in a sense. So I think it's really as simple as that. I think it's simple as just an extra layer of alignment of protection and alignment of interest for the limited partners and them knowing that, hey, if this deal cash flows 8% or lower, the GP is not going to get a portion of the profits. I'm going to get that. So I think it's as simple as that, Travis. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it is kind of quite that simple. To your point, there's no guarantees with investing. And this, to me, is kind of the next best thing. It's saying, well, hey, look, I'll give you the first 8% of a deal or whatever. 100% goes to you first before I even start pulling at it or, or splitting anything. I like that incentive. I've done both as a limited partner. I've invested in both structures. I'll tell you, part of my criteria today, 2021, is to always have a preferred return or what some groups call a coupon. The difference is really if it's a limited partnership structure or an LLC structure, but not to get long-winded with that. But I did partner years ago in a deal, no preferred return, straight split, like exactly this question. And I don't know, call it coincidence or what have you. They stopped distributions for, in my opinion, not a great reason. And I felt like it was just because they didn't have to. There was no obligation. There was no prep, no expectation, whatever. So it baffled me. It's like, why would you do that? You're obviously going to turn off a lot of your investors by doing that, but rightfully so they did it. So for what it's worth, I just feel like of all the deals I've done with preferred returns, I feel like to your point, Theo, it's the GP saying, we better make sure this deal is performing and we better make sure our investors are getting paid or we're going to have some problems on our hands. And I just feel like that it's not even an alignment of interest. It's putting the LPs first, which maybe seems a little selfish, but hey, you know, we're the ones taking most of the risk anyway. So for what it's worth, yeah, that's the bottom line. It's an alignment of interest. It's something I look for. It's something that everyone listening should put in their criteria either way. I prefer just a straight split structure. I prefer having a preferred return. So those are my thoughts on it. Pretty straightforward, I think. There's one thing that I just thought of that I think confuses some people. So I think this is a good spot to talk about. And that's the difference between when you're reviewing a deal, the difference between the preferred return and then the cash and cash return percentage. So you'll see a deal where, for example, the overall preferred return is say 7% Mm -hmm. to you as an investor. And then you look at the investment summary and say, oh, well, hey, well, why are they saying that I'm only getting 5.8% or 5.5% or 5% or whatever cash and cash return year one? And then why is it at the end of the deal, the cash and cash return is 20%? I don't get that. What's the difference between that cash and cash return and the preferred return? And so the preferred return is just, again, a threshold. It's not you're guaranteed to get 7% forever, and then that's it. That's all you're going to get is something else. That's just like, hey, that's the threshold. So up to that point, you get the cash flow. And then above that, it gets split. So if the deal cash flow is below the preferred return, then you're going to get whatever that cash flow is. And then usually the difference between the preferred return that you're offered and the cash on cash return that you actually receive, that will typically accrue and then be paid out at some point during the deal 
It kind of varies from sponsor to sponsor. And then let's say the year two, it's 7%. Well, then you get 7%. And then let's say year three, it's 8%. So you're going to get your 7% plus whatever the split is of that 1%. So you might get 0.77% it's a 7.30 split. And overall, over the lifetime of the deal, all those percentages will be averaged to get you what your overall cash and cash return is. So kind of overall, the cash and cash return is just based off of what you actually get. And the preferred return is just saying, hey, here's the threshold that if it's below this, you get all of it. If it's above this, then you get up to that point and then a split of what's left. Exactly. And there's different ways to catch up a pref while we're on this topic. Ideally, how you're going to catch up a pref in your example, Theo, is if your property actually produced 5% in a year, but you have a seven pref, well, you're behind, right? You didn't get the full pref. Ideally, through performance of the property, you're going to be able to catch that up. And as rents and cash flow increases, you can eventually catch everyone up. If you can't do that, you can catch up a pref through a refinance, for example, if there's some equity to be had, extract some of that, pay everybody up to their pref, maybe a little more, who knows, return to capital, et cetera. If you can't do that, it can come from the sale of the property. I had this happen. A property really went sideways in terms of the projections, but there was a good amount of equity in it. So when we sold, that pref got caught up first. So all the LPs ended up getting that pref. And then we did a split on top of that. But unfortunately, we had to wait. So yeah, a lot of folks, I think that are especially newer, confuse when they see a seven pref that, oh, this thing is just 7% cash flow for five years. That's really not how it works. It could be below, it could be above, it could be at, it's going to be all over the place. But pay attention to that in underwriting. When you see these deals, anyone who's an LP or a passive investor, what I see a lot of times is, a deal will pop up in my email from some sponsor and it'll say average cash flow 9.5% annually. And I'll think, wow, that's incredible. And then I'll look at the breakdown and it'll be like 5% year one, 7% year two, and then they'll bump way high, like 13% or something. And what they're doing is they're projecting a refinance and they're trying to manipulate the numbers. And then they're trying to spin this thing off to the illusion that it's just a 9% cash flowing asset. It is not by any means that. So it's important to dig a little deeper, ask the questions, do your due diligence, et cetera. Yeah, we'll, we'll do a show because I, I like want to go into more detail on this, but we'll do a show where we talk about the different returns that are offered. I don't think we've done one yet because mm-hmm. there's different cash on cash returns or equity multiples, IRRs, all this fun stuff. I think that could be a full show. So we'll stop there with answering those two questions. Again, if you want to have us answer your questions either on the main show or on the 60 second question YouTube videos that we do, you can submit your questions to Theo at JoeFairless.com. And you can submit one question or a list of questions, whatever you want. So Travis, is there anything else you're going to mention before we sign off? I don't think so. I think we hit it. So thank you guys for these questions and keep them rolling. Yep. Keep them coming. Travis, thanks again, as always, for joining me today. Best ever listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Have a best ever day and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, Theo. Thanks, everyone. Groundbreaker helps you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. That's groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe to get a free deal pitch deck template.